The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Do you ever wonder how to apply the Bible? Do you ever feel like you've heard it? Maybe you've learned something that didn't hit your heart, that didn't change your life? Why is that? How can we change that? We're continuing our series, Life as Exiles, through 1 Peter. And we should see that those who have trusted their lives to Christ should see themselves as exiles. And now, what does it mean to be an exile? An exile is someone who's living in a place that's not their home. Now, that's a common theme in Scripture. Where we live now is not where we are from or where we are going, and this should change our expectations. And so far, we have seen four ways our expectations have changed. First, you can expect to not belong. This is not our home. It's not going to satisfy you. Second, you can expect to suffer. Now, we saw that last week. If you didn't get a chance to hear last week's sermon, please check it out on our website. And if you haven't suffered, just wait. You will. You will. But we know that God is sovereign and in control and that our suffering will sharpen and increase our faith. And God will be glorified in it. And we'll see later on how our faith will give us different perspective on suffering. Third, you expect to be misunderstood. We have a different culture, different language. We have different practices and goals. We have different expectations and values. And fourth, you expect to work hard to remember who you are and what you're about. This world will constantly try to distract you or dissuade you. And it will try to convince you that what you believe is, is backward and foolish. It will mock you and ridicule you. We'll try to shut you up and put you down. And sometimes oh, we can be our own worst enemy in that area. And we must fight and work to remember who we are and what we're about. And this is what we'll be looking at today. Today we're in verses 13 through 21. And the question Peter has for us is, how should we act in our daily lives if we've tasted this great salvation? How do we apply this? How should we act in our daily lives if we've tasted this great salvation? Now, we're going to see four things today. First of all, we're going to remember this great salvation. We're going to see a great hope. We're going to see a great fear. And we're going to see that's because we know where we belong. So, first of all, we're going to remember this great salvation. We're going to see a great hope, a great fear, because we know where we belong. If you look at our passage, verse 13, our passage begins with therefore. Therefore refers to everything that we've seen so far, verses 1 through 12. To sum it up, let's look at verses 3 and 4. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter is starting off 
this letter just busting out in praise to God. He's praising God for his great mercy towards us. He's celebrating what God has done because we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. In fact, we hated him before we came to faith. But he made us his children in Jesus Christ. According to verse 2, if you look at verse 2, this is the saving work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God working in concert with each other to save us, bring us to himself. As we saw last week, we have a new life. We've been born again to know and enjoy God. And we have an awesome eternal inheritance. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, all a free gift from God. Despite our rebellion, our sin, our wickedness, he saved us. We have the most awesome, amazing salvation. We've been adopted by God through Christ to an inheritance. Then Peter says in verse 13, therefore, therefore, this is how we should respond. Now, shouldn't this great salvation change our lives? And if you tasted this great salvation, it will. So how do we apply it? So after remembering, first of all, after remembering this great salvation, we will see the right hope. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, do you see what the right hope is? Do you see what the right hope is? The right hope is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the second coming. He's coming back. He will return. And we see three verbs here. We see prepare your minds. We see being sober-minded. And we see set your hope. Now, what do you think the imperative is? What is the command? It's set your hope fully on the return of Jesus. Now, did you hear that? This is a command. Peter is commanding us. He's saying that as a Christian who's received this great salvation to fix our hope. We're supposed to fix our hope. Now, what is hope? What is hope? Hope is the expectation of something great. So there are a lot of small hopes, right? So we all have small hopes. So Matt's not here, so I hope it's a short sermon today. <laughs> you know, we might hope for lunch. Or I hope my cowboys win today. Huh? Of course, our more important hopes. We have hopes for our kids, for our family. We have work, retirement. But then there's the question of the ultimate hope. Ultimate hope is what are you building your life on? Because that's what you're living for. Hope is not wishful thinking. It's not, gee, I hope, you know, I don't know if this will happen, but I hope it does. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Christian hope. Christian hope is when God has promised something and then we trust in that promise. It's a confidence that something will happen because God has promised that it will happen. Because our God is trustworthy, he keeps his promises. So you look at hope this way. I mean, you've probably heard this illustration before. I don't match used it. You know, you imagine two women working in a factory. At the end of one year, one is promised $30,000. End of one year, the other is promised $3 million. 
Now, this is ironclad promise, rock solid. This money is sitting there in escrow. It's waiting for them to, be picked, waiting for them to pick it up. They just have to work the one, one year. Now, if you ask the first woman, what does she think about her job? She's probably going to say, this job sucks. You allowed to say that in a sermon, that word? All right, this job's horrible. It's terrible. I hate it. I hate it. But then you ask the other woman, what does she think about her job? She's going, hey, this job's great. It's fabulous. I mean, this is the greatest job ever. So what's the difference between these two perspectives? Well, it's hope, right? It's hope. Our God has promised, and he will deliver. He promises an eternal inheritance. It cannot corrode or spoil. It cannot be used up. And it's being kept for us by the power of God. And guess what's going to happen? Every hope this world can offer. It's going to fail. It's going to fail. Think about it. Think about it. How many hopes have you had that either never materialized or failed to satisfy you? And what are you going to do if that's your ultimate hope? Small hopes are fine. But... um, I don't know what people that do not believe in God set their hope in. I mean, let's, let's look at it. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry and the psychiatric professions are making billions off of people whose hopes have failed them. But what will we do? We set our hope, our ultimate hope in the turn of Jesus. And what will happen? What will happen? Well, grace, grace will be brought to you. And what is grace? Well, grace is the it's a lavish, unmerited, undeserved love of God. Lavish meaning we get lots of it. We're just going to be inundated with grace. It's just going to be covered us. We're going to be swimming in grace. And God doesn't owe that to us. We don't deserve it. God gives it freely. That's what makes it grace. And we'll get to see him as he is. When Jesus returns, we will see him as he is. He will finally be revealed to us. The invisible will become visible. We'll see his majesty and his beauty. And on that day, he will reward and glorify his people. His redemptive work will be done. Our salvation will be complete. I love to pray in Philippians where, where Paul says, you know, you know, complete in us the work that, that you've begun. And this is what he's talking about. This is the work begun in us that will be completed on the day of Christ Jesus. Is when this grace is brought to us that we'll be set free from sin. Can you believe that? Set free from sin. No more suffering. No more sickness, brokenness. Cancer is gone. You can't sin because sin doesn't exist. This is our inheritance. This is what we have to look forward to, the returning of Christ. The sickness you now have or are going to have will be gone. It won't even exist. Cancer won't be cured. It won't exist. Be gone. Our ultimate hope is return of Christ. And hope is important because our life is built on it. So how do we set our hope fully? What does Peter say? We prepare our minds for action. Now, this is what we do. Peter is saying we have work to do. This isn't a passive faith, a passive religion. This is active. We have work to do here. And this is what we do. Peter is saying we have work to do. Our mind is this fight to hope in Jesus. So we have to prepare our minds. Now, some translations say gird your minds. Uh, Gird means to uh, gather up and kind of uh, secure it, you know, tie a belt around it. 
And, and this is the picture that Peter is using here because men back there, they wore robes and they need to run. They need to gather up their robes so that they can run. They need to secure it. Even going, you know, especially going into battle or something. You know, that's why I wear shorts a lot. So you never know when you have to run. But they would gather up their, their robes and, and secure it. You know, we think of the father of the prodigal son. We saw his son far off. He gathered up his robes. He started running because he didn't want to get snagged on the rocks. He didn't want to get tripped up. So we do this with our mind. We prepare our minds. We secure it. We get ready to move. We need to focus and get our priorities straight. Peter's saying, don't let your mind be cluttered with the noise of the world, but take every thought captive to obey Christ and the reality of his grace. Second thing he says is be sober-minded. We need to be serious about how we live. Some translations say self-controlled, but I don't think that fully illustrates what Peter is saying here. Certainly a part of it, we do want to be self-controlled, but doesn't fully describe it. And Peter's saying don't get drunk on, on the hopes here. Don't get drunk on the hopes here. I mean, what happens when you're drunk? When you're drunk, you don't think clearly, right? At least that's what I understand. Anyway, Peter's saying, Peter's saying, have clarity of mind. The world wants to distract you, wants to seduce you, wants to numb you. That's what drugs, alcohol does, it numbs you. And that's what the world wants to do, wants to numb you. So get your mind off of Jesus. And Peter's saying, have none of that. Have none of that. Instead, have a disciplined mind, a disciplined heart. Take every thought captive to obey Christ and the reality of his grace. I want you all to be honest here. Do you ever find yourself thinking that you hope Jesus doesn't come back just yet? Would it, would it mess up your plans? If you'd rather stay here in exile than be with Christ, enjoying our inheritance, then you haven't prepared your mind. You haven't fixed your hope in the graces to come that God has promised. So set your hope fully on the grace we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you, now, do you know that our hope glorifies God? Our hope glorifies God. It, it proclaims to the world that God is faithful and can be trusted. It proclaims the, to the world that God keeps his promises. He is a covenant-keeping God and is worthy of our fixed hope, and it honors him and glorifies him that our salvation is entirely of him. Prepare your mind. Be sober-minded. Christians are to be thinkers. We should be the world's greatest thinkers. And what is one way to do that? Well, it's to meditate on Scripture. So read the Bible daily. We should be disciplined enough to be reading the Bible daily. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Grab one, take it, it's yours, it's our gift to you. It's our gift to you, please take it. Read it. That's how, I, that's how I became saved, is, you know, 20 some, uh, oh gosh, how long ago was it now? I opened the Bible for the first time. I discovered that Jesus is God. I started Matthew. Don't know where to start. I started Matthew. I just read through the Gospels. And that's where I got saved. I got saved by, came to Christ through reading the Scripture. Meditate on it daily. Think about it. So how are you going to practically actually set the ultimate hope of your heart on the return of Jesus? How are you going to put this into practice? 
So the great salvation should give us the right hope, should also give us the right fear. The right fear is a strong desire to please your Father who is holy in everything. Now, what do we mean by fear? Is it terror? Can't possibly be terror. Living in terror would be at odds with the confidence that believers have in Christ. And doesn't fit with joy and boldness of the Christian life. Instead, it's reverence. It's reverence. But unfortunately, reverence has been watered down to be practically meaningless around here. Well, not around here, but just in general. But reverence is a deep respect. It's a deep respect. And there's a relational aspect to this. Now, we're going to see the right fear is a strong desire to please your Father who is holy in everything. Now, think about it. Who, who do you want to please? Who are the people you want to please the most in your life? Now, don't be automatically spiritual. Don't give me a Sunday school answer. Jesus. You know, I mean, think about it. Who do, you want to, who do you want to please? Write something down. Write something down. And why is it so important to please them? Why is it so important? Now, who is, Jesus, who is Peter telling us to please? Well, let's look in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time, throughout the time of your exile. So we are beloved children of a holy father. We saw the great salvation. We've been adopted. We have a right to be called his children. And our dad is holy. He is separate. He is set apart. He is utterly set apart from all other beings and things. He is unique in the absolute ultimate sense. You cannot get more unique than God is. He is, you can't, uniqueness doesn't even describe how unique he is. There's nothing and no one like him. Our father also hates evil. He hates with a passion. He sits in judgment of it. And he loves, loves, loves what is good. If we love our father, we want to please our father. We'll want to be like him. So what kind of kids should we be? We should be holy. <laughs> Wait, what? We've got to be what? Holy. And what does holy mean? Well, a lot of times we think that holiness means morality, right? We think of the Ten Commandments. God's th faithful, therefore you, sh you shouldn't lie or commit adultery, right? God is loving, so you shouldn't steal or kill. So it is correct to think of holiness as right living and moral living. There's nothing wrong with thinking that, but, but it's much more than that. It's much more than that. Look at, our, look at what Peter says. Peter says, as it is written. So Peter is saying, this is in Scripture. I'm getting this from Scripture. Scripture says, be holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, where is Peter quoting this from? Well, Peter is quoting this from Leviticus. So he's going to the Old Testament. He's going to the law. He's going to Leviticus. And he's saying, God says in Leviticus, that you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
Now, Leviticus does talk about holy people, but doesn't just talk about holy people. It also talks about holy places. It talks about holy convocation or gatherings. I had to look that one up. What's a convocation? It's a gathering, a holy gathering. It also talks about holy things. Now, in the context, what Peter is talking about and what he's writing here in this letter is that there are things that are called holy. We have holy utensils, holy, holy tables, holy pots. These things are to be holy. So therefore, in the context, he can't be talking about morality. After all, what is a holy pot? Or what is a moral pot? I'm sorry, what is a moral pot? Is that a pot that doesn't drink and smoke and run around with women who do? No, no. How do you make a pot moral? Holiness, in this instance, means separate. It means set apart. And we should see how God is holy. He is utterly set apart. So to be holy is to be set apart for God's use. If you want to make a pot holy, you would take it to the priests, and, they, and that pot would then be used in service to God. Therefore, we are to be holy for God's use. So to please our Father, we must be holy. And here, because God has given us his great salvation, we want to please him. If you have a relationship with God, you want to please him because he is worthy, and not because we get anything from him, because he's already given us everything. He's given us himself. He's given us himself. Now, we should be obedient children because we love our Father, not because we're hoping to become his children, but because we already are. We didn't become holy or good and then become his children. He called us in a messed up, God-hating situation in our plight. He saved us. We love Dad. We love our Father. And you can see how relationship is so important and being holy. And can you see how holiness is more than just keeping a set of rules? We all know, quote unquote, good people, right? And we all know them. We all know people that think they're keeping the rules. And the world hands out awards to good people. Good people love to preach to us about being good. And the world celebrates them. And for the sake of argument, we'll, we'll assume they're good. I mean, I was a good person. Before I came to Christ, I would say I was a good person. Yeah, I'm moral. I'm keeping the rules. And we can say, yeah, they're keeping the rules. They're moral. But they're not holy. They're not holy. Holiness is to belong to God. Because of our great salvation, we owe him everything. And we should sense that we belong to him. The core of holiness is intensely personal. It gives the principles for applying holiness in all of our life. Every part of your life has got to be holy. Our eating, our drinking, everything we do. Be holy. Love what the Father loves. Hate what he hates. It's here also that our, our Father is the judge of everything. He judges, judges impartially according to everyone's deeds. Therefore, we are to, to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. We should have a strong desire to please him in everything. We are adopted. Get rid of old habits or get rid of the habits of our, of our old life. Things we did in ignorance before we became children. Yes, we did them in ignorance because we didn't know. 
We didn't know. We were ignoring God. We have an old life that's full of evil desires. Get rid of them. What do you need to let go of? What do you need to let go of? What old life habit? Let's put this in practice. What old life habit are you going to let go of this week? We're in a time of exile. We're not home yet. Let's remember your father. So how do you cultivate a heart that wants to please your holy father more than anyone else? Well, you have the right hope. What is that hope? Return of Christ. You have the right fear. Deep, deep reverence of God. And be holy. How do we be holy? Well, we have a deep love and reverence for our father. And we be holy by, by preparing our mind and being sober-minded. And, we, and with, through that, we can set our hope on the return of Christ. And this leads to holiness. This leads to holiness. And all this is because you know where you belong. Now, by now, your hope for a short sermon has probably been dashed. So we'll go to verse 18. Know that you are ransomed. Knowing that you are ransomed from feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he is foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for, your sake, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." Now, the picture here that Peter is painting is, is of a prisoner. It's either a prisoner or even a slave. It's, it's someone who's being oppressed, someone who cannot escape. They're, they're hemmed in. They're in, in, in a prison. And, and a ransom, a ransom is a payment to have that, to release that prisoner or even release that slave. You give someone money and they... You get that person. That person's been ransomed. This is what Peter is saying here. Because we've been ransomed from our feudal, feudal ways. So, you, know, you also say that we're slaves from our old ways. And what were, what were we bought with? Well, it was not money. God, God didn't give them silver or gold. I mean, what do you say here? That perishes. Silver and gold perishes. I mean, we don't see it here, but, you know, it's not going to last forever. So it's not something as cheap as silver and gold. But instead, what was it bought with? What does it say? It was bought with the, with the blood of Jesus. It's like a lamb. Like in the Old Testament, they had sacrificial lambs. They would take the lamb, they slaughter the lamb. This was to, to, you know, to um, seek forgiveness for their sins. And Jesus, he came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He was fully pleasing God the Father. There wasn't a time in the life of Jesus where he did not fully worship God as he deserves to be worshipped. But yet there wasn't a time in our lives, not one moment in our lives, where we ever worshipped God as he deserves to be worshipped. And God placed his son, his only son, his beloved son, whom he loved and was well pleased on a cross. He took all of our sins, our past sins, our future sins, the sins I'm committing right now while I'm preaching to you, the sins you're committing right now while you're listening to me, our future sins from, from now, from this moment, until we breathe our last. He's taken all those sins and placed them on his son. 
Jesus always referred to God as Father, except for this one moment when he cries out, hang on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, God slammed the door on him and crushed him. He slaughtered him. Satisfying God's justice. He was placed in a tomb and to show how God was pleased with the sacrifice, he raised him from the dead. This is our great salvation. He came for you and saved you through him, through Jesus, your believers. And God has united us to Jesus in his life, and his death, his resurrection. God's justice is satisfied. Our sins are paid for. God took our sins upon him and died our place. And now God looks at us as though we have never sinned. He looks at us as though we are perfect. He sees his son through us, or sees us through his son. We have his righteousness. We've been declared righteous. We're not righteous yet. We've been declared righteous. We have his righteousness code on us. We have been justified. This, this is our great salvation. Now let's apply this great salvation. How do we do that? Make sure we have the right hope. What is the right hope? The return of Jesus. So how are you going to do that this week? Well, we're going to be holy. So what old life habit are you willing to let go of this week? And we're also, we want to invite people to belong. We invite people to belong. So what are we again? We're exiles. So what does that tell us or tell you about how God saves people? Well, he brings people into a family. And he seeks his mercy and finds them and brings them in. So we won't be like our father. What do you think we should be like? Well, we should be building a culture of invitation. Now, what's a culture? Well, culture is what you do without thinking about it, right? It's, it's what's normal. It's what, what we do. It's, it's what we're about. It's who we are. It's our culture. So let's try this out this week. If you're talking to someone, ask them a question. Just ask them, do you have a local church that you attend regularly? I mean regularly. You go there most Sundays, if not all Sundays. If they say yes, then great. You know, talk about God, praise God, pray together. But if they don't, just say, I'd like, you, I'd like to invite you to mine. We have some great Fountain of Life cards out, out in the foyer. Just, you know, grab some, carry some with you. Invite somebody to church. Invite them to church. And they share stories. Listen to them. They share a story. Maybe they'll tell you why they don't go to church. Do you have a story? I'm sure you all do. I know we all have stories. I mean, we have, a, we have an answer about what God has done for us, right? You have a story. You have an answer about what it's like to fellowship with other believers. Share stories. Listen. Share your stories. And as you do, pray. As you do, pray. Pray for an opportunity and work for an opportunity to do what? Share the gospel. Share the gospel. Why, why do we keep this great salvation to ourselves? Why do we do that? Open our mouths. 
When someone is suffering, don't we have something to say about that? Tell them about who Jesus is. Tell them what he's done for you. Then continue building a culture of invitation. Welcome people. Invite them into your lives. Be the person you want someone, to be, someone else to be for you. Welcome people. I mean, Fountain of Life, I mean, we are a welcoming church. I, I got to commend you all for that. People walk through the doors. I remember when I walked in the doors for the first time. I mean, I, I just felt loved. I felt welcomed. And that hasn't changed one bit. I, I, I thank you all for that. I thank God for that. I think I, it's beautiful. Continue to do that. I know we'll, I have confidence we'll continue to do that. We're exiles. We're exiles. We found a family. We found a home in the family of God. So we should do that as well. So let's build a culture of invitation. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for what he's done. Thank you for his great work. We thank you for this great salvation. Father, I pray that we will apply this to our lives. I pray, Lord, that we will continue to set our hope in the return of Christ. I pray that we will continue to prepare our minds, be sober-minded, and continue to be holy. We can't do this without you, Lord. We ask for your help. We thank you, and we praise you. We love your beautiful son. We love you. It's all in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.